Hello, we are back with the Urbanize podcast. Today, I'm here with Tom Kloster, Senior Planner at Metro. Hello. Hi, Wally. Am I, am I sitting close enough? Yeah. Okay, I'll move over a little bit. All right. So, um, today we're just going to be talking about how uh, transportation planning intersects with public health and the public in general. Are you ready today, Tom? Absolutely. Okay. How does public participation inform your practice? Well, so if if you're practicing um, ethically and properly as a planner, you really start with public participation because mm-hmm. the role of a planner um, is to really channel the public interest, um, mm-hmm. and you can only do that by um, connecting to the public. That's harder to do in my job because we work at the regional level, mm-hmm. and it's a region of 1.8 million people, so there's a lot of people. Uh, but we find ways to do that. Uh, if you're a city planner, especially a small city, Mm. Uh, which I did earlier in my career, you can do that in a big way. Uh, you can, you know, get to know people in the community on a very, very uh, detailed level, um, and you get to know uh, a lot of the volunteers who make up things like your planning commission. You can recruit people to be on the planning commission so their voice really gets heard. So there's a lot of ways to do it. But if you're doing your job right, uh, you're advocating for the public, sometimes even against the political, uh, you know, will of your agency. So that's that's where your planning ethics come in, and you have to speak for that person who's not in the room, and uh, and that's almost always somebody that you've met in public outreach. That's great. Mm-hmm. And how do you? I guess you've worked at so many different positions in planning for emerging planners who are kind of trying to weigh their options of: Do I try to work in the big city, or do I try to like starting out? Do you think it'd be better to work at a small place kind of learn everything or go into a big yeah that's big a, that's a good question I personally started at a, a mid-sized jurisdiction mm-hmm. uh, city of Gresham mm-hmm. um, uh, was my first uh, real planning job and we had a we had about a dozen planning staff with all different functions some worked in parks some were transportation some were front counter permitting but because we were relatively small um, everybody in the staff had front counter duty during the week um, everybody had a few permits on their on their uh, desk to, to process. I did more long range planning, mm-hmm. but it really grounded me to have front counter counter experience to see how you know code that I was writing and and preparing for the council would actually be uh, implemented at the front counter when somebody comes in for a permit, um, and then also to be applying the code uh, in permitting. Uh, so it was super helpful for me, and likewise. Uh, planners who did permitting uh, as their main job, um, they would help me on long-range projects, and so they would help write code. And I think <laughs> for them, um, they it would help them see how important it was to get the frame right and to connect to the public. Um, and uh, again, ask that question: Who's not in the room yeah. and needs to be represented when we write code? So, I guess I'm I'm, I'm answering your question with: it's, it's a smaller jurisdiction gives you a chance to have a lot of that yeah. early in your career. I think that's a good idea. Uh, I will also say it's the most common job to get early in your career because um, mm-hmm. smaller jurisdictions have a fair amount of turnover. Mm-hmm. So um, I always advocate for taking your first couple of years, just apply everywhere yeah. uh, and uh, and grab onto that first job you get. It might be for a very small city and just 
work hard to get all the experience you can. Uh, you may want to work in a large agency later. A lot of people do. Mm -hmm. uh, that job will certainly help you get that that uh, that next job and so on. So yeah, I think it's a good place to prove yourself in that smaller setting. That's great. Mm -hmm. My next question: um, Do you see, I guess, do you see outreach and communications as different skill sets? in your practice? Well, I think this is where, uh, for me as a planner, you know, I've worked as a transportation planner now for a long time here at Metro, but I, I really resist um, having specialties in planning. Mm -hmm. I, for me, the planning profession was created because we needed a professional who could bridge architecture, engineering, um, communications, public engagement. And so I prefer to think of a planner as a Jack or Jill of all trades and, mm -hmm. and being a renaissance person in that, in that they learn uh, just enough to be effective in all those areas, not just to be an expert. Mm -hmm. There are certainly planners who become very expert in communications or in other, uh, other parts of planning, but I would say every planner should um, expect to have a strong communications uh, skill set. One thing when I do my hiring here at Metro, mm -hmm. uh, um, so this is a little tip when people are applying for jobs <laughs> at Metro, uh, we always have essay questions, um, mm -hmm. and uh, it's, it seems like we're asking people to prove that they were paying attention in planning school. Uh, really, I'm looking for their ability to concisely bring together um, uh, their points, uh, almost like a press release quality, mm -hmm. uh, because you know they only have so much space in their application. Mm. So uh, some folks will recite all the things that they know. Other folks will make a really compelling story uh, to respond to the question. And that's a, that's a really important skill because in, in graduate school, uh, you're kind of writing in academic prose. Yes. Um, and trying to shift over to um, this uh, everyday language, uh, plain English as a lot of people call it, is super important. Mm. And it's also um, inclusive because most people in society um, don't have the technical training to read, you know, uh, an academic paper or mm -hmm. even one of our technical reports that we do at Metro. So planners have the role of creating the bridge to, to interpret essentially what's really important out of that technical work mm. so that anybody in the community can understand it, realize how it might affect them, and even better respond uh, back and say whether they agree or disagree or what we missed, that kind of thing. So it helps you stay grounded to be able to communicate in plain English. That's great. Mm -hmm. So, we're flying through these. We just have uh, three more left. There you go. So, I guess, um, how do you balance, like, how do you professionally balance, like, the public engagement that you do receive once you put word out and they talk back to you, if they understood, with implementation? Yeah. So, there's a, so, in the planning pro process, there's a very uh, formal process, uh, which is you have hearings, and you have staff reports, and you have planning commissions, and city councils, and in our case, metro councils, all making uh, decisions with votes. Um, mm. And so um, that is a really effective way to make a decision on something specific, uh, but it can also be really exclusive. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think the role of a planner is to, um, again, be the bridge to help people understand that um, that we're about to adopt, let's say, a new sign code for our community. We're about to adopt a new sign code, um, and it's going to have all kinds of impacts. Um, in the community, there might be a business owner 
who's running a very marginal but long-standing business that's supporting his or her family, has mm-hmm. uh, been there for a couple decades that that, that person inherited, um, but they have a, a an old sign that's non-conforming under the new code. What does that mean? Uh, it might mean that it's going to be a $10,000 expense for that business person to have a new sign. Yeah. Um, if then and hopefully the code is written so that that person understands why that's a good idea, yeah. or uh, if there's uh, flexibility so that person doesn't have to immediately have to have that expense uh, in a way that might even put them out of business. Yeah. So it's I think the um, all those interests like that they all relate back to how planning regulates development in particular, mm-hmm. uh, and being able to explain to the average person out there. You know why it was a good idea to have a new you know code uh, uh, section come in, uh, but also that you've paid enough attention and interpreted why this is happening that you're getting the feedback you need to make exceptions. So in that sign code example, and I, that wasn't just sort of random. I was thinking back on a sign code that I wrote when I was in Gresham, one of my first projects there, mm-hmm. and we learned from the community that. That they were really concerned about these huge, you know, um, sort of Walmart signs and stuff going up. They were just mammoth. There was no really limits on signs. Yeah. And you could see them from all over the place. They kind of took over the community. Um, and But the community also said there's a few of these old kind of kitschy neon uh, signs that are basically historic that we don't want to lose, even though when the next, you know, fast food place comes in, we want them to have a smaller sign that's less intrusive. Yeah. So we specifically wrote in a way to allow some of these older signs that had been around long enough that they weren't seen as um, like a negative, they're seen as a positive, even though on paper mm. uh, they might be equal to, you know, a big fast food sign or whatever in terms of like their size and height and so on. So that's the kind of thing that we wrote in. We also, um, in terms of uh, signs at those fast food places and so on that were exceeding the code, we wrote in uh, some time for them to gradually come into compliance. It wasn't like overnight. Okay. Uh, they had, I think, 10 years. So it was a fair amount of time. That was based on kind of how often uh, businesses change their signs anyway. Yeah. And so there was, there was all these accommodating measures to say, the community really thinks we're being taken over by these strip commercial signs. Mm-hmm. Um, well, what's a reasonable way um, to redirect where the community goes, not lose some of the history, and, and be fair to businesses out there? So that's, that's like a really simple example because every community has a sign code. Yeah. Uh, if you ever, once you've written one as a planner, whenever you visit a town anywhere in this country, you immediately know if they've got a, uh, a really stringent sign code. And sometimes, like in tourist uh, cities, mm-hmm. um, they, yeah. you can see they've really dialed it down because they don't really want to have a large commercial statement, especially from franchises. That's always the complaint from the community is that, how many, how big does McDonald's sign have to be? You know, we yeah. know it's a McDonald's. Uh, if you go to some of the little tourist communities, uh, McDonald's barely has a sign, you know, and they have architectural requirements for the building and so on, so that this business that's part of, you know, in that case, a mega corporation, isn't imposing something in the community that's not fitting with the community. So that's mm-hmm. the kind of thing that um, it varies by community. I also like that idea that community society, you know, what are our values? Yeah. Um, and signs are just one of those things. It's, it's uh, every planner who does land use planning will encounter the sign code. Yeah. And uh, and it's one of those things that uh, it's in the right of way, mm-hmm. or uh, next to the right of way. Everybody sees signs. Everybody has an opinion about it. So it's it's pretty unavoidable if you're a local planner that you will touch the sign code someday. Yeah. 
just as an example. And there, and Pining has a, a you know dozens of other realms that are just like that. That's great. Did I answer your question on that yes, one? Yes, it does. Okay. Yes, it does. That's great. Okay. Something. Uh, do you consider public health related to your work? And if so, how? Oh, totally. Yeah, central. Yeah, I mm -hmm. think we're just starting to uh, appreciate that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you look at the history of planning again as a profession, it really came from public health. Um, mm -hmm. If you, if folks who haven't been in graduate school for a while like me, we still remember that it was tenement housing, mm -hmm. uh, basic access to sanitation and light mm -hmm. and air, things like that, um, that the development sector wasn't providing. And so um, the public interest came about through zoning to make sure that when people are building housing, they meet these minimum, I would call it a human dignity level at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they, they were building tenement housing that really wasn't um, uh, appropriate for anyone to live in. So, uh, and because they could, they had all kinds of immigrants coming into New York. This is where the origin of all this was in the 1800s. Mm -hmm. And so that idea is still there. I think it's evolved though, because we have all kinds of building and planning laws about you know what, how buildings need to be built to be safe. Uh, since the early '90s, to accommodate people with disabilities, mm -hmm. like with the, with ADA dis, uh, compliant designs, I think now there's a new realm that's evolved, which is um, not so much uh, is your physical health, um, you know, um, reflected in how you build a structure. To now is the community itself creating a healthy community. Uh, and that mm -hmm. gets down to have you built a community that uh, makes it really difficult for people to have active living in their day-to-day -day life. Can, uh, is, is their choice to ride a bike or walk or just walk to transit or walk to the store? Mm -hmm. uh, is, has that been taken away by the design of the community? Yeah. And so this is a larger public health concern that is, is it's more in the public health realm and, and uh, less so kind of an individual um, mm -hmm. you know, like health and safety. Uh, but it's, it's overdue, and I think it's also acknowledging that um, we, we didn't really, planners didn't really own this as an issue until the last maybe 10 years. Up until then, it was like, well, the public health folks will take care of that. But really, the public health folks said, you know, you're designing communities that lead to poor public health outcomes. That's not a public health yeah. department uh, issue. We don't design communities. Planners do that. Yeah. So I think that's where this is starting to emerge. Um, there's also um, a deep equity connection there mm -hmm. as well, um, and that is that people's access to food, um, and especially healthy food, mm -hmm. is deeply affected by planning. And so I think now, um, you know, a term about 10 years ago, a term called a food desert was created by an academic, and it was a perfect term because... Mm -hmm by really lack of planning, we were creating whole areas where people did not have access to affordable food uh, to begin with, but certainly a, a healthy choices. Mm. And so I think this is all stuff that's coming together now in the planning field. And, and I'm hearing more and more people uh, coming into the field saying, I want to I wanna, you know, link um, public health and planning in my career. I, I would predict that in, in another few years, Everybody will. That'll be. Yeah. It'll be in every comp plan, uh, and it'll be as basic as, um, you know, transportation, which is, uh, you know, not that long ago wasn't really a part of planning until the 1960s or so. It became a big part of planning. So, this is where uh, I think the field is recognized again for that idea that we're not experts in one topic. 
where um, folks that um, really have a hybrid of interests and expertise mm -hmm. that can kind of put all the big pieces together in a way, and then we rely on experts in health, yeah. uh, engineering, architecture, and so on to um, piece together all the details that make all that work. That's, that a, long, that's a long answer there, but yeah. Sounds great. We're like deep generalists? Yeah, okay. I think so, yeah. I, um, yeah, I think the, um, the thing on the public health front is that uh, it's right now folks are are concerned about the climate crisis as we should be because uh, it's uh, it's our really an imperative for certainly our time but if another disturbing number uh, out there is that we're actually losing ground on public health in this country so yeah. and it's related to a variety of things uh, or uh, there's some economic disparities tied to it but there is most certainly planning uh, uh, tied to it. So I think there's an opportunity for for your generation of planners coming in mm -hmm. to call that question. The really helpful thing right now is that the profession, when I was coming in, was moving uh, into what call, was called first neo-traditional and then new urbanism, that whole movement to really focus on how towns are organized. Yeah. Uh, and that was um, really thinking it was a little bit ahead of the public health question, but it was really on that same track. Mm -hmm. I think now that um, concept, which was very driven by architecture, has evolved to outcomes-based planning, which is uh, essentially you're going to have a dashboard and a report card mm -hmm. on things that are important for this community to achieve, and that's going to drive your decisions, uh, as yeah. opposed to uh, just presuming that the way you build it is going to automatically get you there. So I think mm -hmm. we're in a really good place as a profession yeah. Uh, the, the, the hard thing for, um, for folks like you that are entering the profession is keeping the integrity of outcomes-based um, planning intact when you get to the political process of actually adopting plans, yeah. uh, saying yes or no on developments, things like that. Because um, outcomes are they're not always welcome news when you bring the information forward and say we need to do this differently. Um, you're going to have pushback because it may be against the status quo. And I would point to climate change and climate policy as a perfect example of that, where in this yeah. in this country alone, really, in the industrialized world, uh, the energy, the fossil fuel uh, sector um, consciously undermines science and, and, um, and policy making uh, because of a vested interest. And this is all known now, uh, but, it, but it's created for us huge political problem because it got so deep into the politics that the climate became a partisan issue. So that's kind of the danger, I think, of outcomes-based planning is that people with vested interests um, are going to really uh, be threatened if, if uh, you know, data-driven policy is pushing against their interests. So this is a tough one. Yeah. Uh, but I think the good part is um, <laughs> that if there we're also a, a, a nation of laws. And laws come down to uh, evidence. So yeah. um, that's where uh, public policy that has been data-driven has really been upheld in the courts. And so I think that's one of the better things uh, about this is that moving away from sort of you know, planning theory or architectural design, these little softer uh, philosophies, being outcomes-based means that if you are sued on a policy, you can go to court of law and you can show the data and that's almost always going to really support you in the end. That's so I, th I think it's a really good time to be a planner right now. You do have to be okay with, um, with being um, somewhat data savvy. Uh, and this goes back to that communication discussion we had where um, that's yet another area for planners 
to be interpreters to the public. So, you know, yeah. learning to do infographics and learning to synthesize a lot of data into some really big takeaways that people would say, oh, wow, that's, that's amazing. I didn't know that, you know, childhood obesity had gone up in our community in the last five years, you know, things like yeah. that. That people can then say, okay, now I see why this is an important decision to make. That's great. We just have, I guess we have uh, just two last questions. Well, you already answered one. It's like, do you consider interdisciplinary approaches necessary? And I think you, I think you answered. Yeah, that. yeah. I will say, by the way, I think the thing that's missing most in the curriculum right now is is landscape architecture. This is my own personal pitch. Um, I love landscape architects, yeah. and they often become planners. Mm. Uh, I would love to see landscape architecture be a bigger part of the um, you know masters of urban planning curriculum. Yeah. I think I think there's a lot of uh, great things that have been brought in, mm. but um, the you know the term placemaking is one we use here at Metro. I think uh, the the downside of being too data driven um, and too analytical is that you can start to drift too far away from what it's like to experience a public space or even a private space. Yeah. And landscape architects um, are are my one of my favorite folks to work with because. Uh, an architect designs a building, sometimes a space. Landscape architects always design a space, and okay. they're and uh, and they they need planners to help them figure out what they're trying to design for. Um, but we need them to make sure that when it unfolds, it's a place that people want to be, and it reflects their values and feels like uh, you know something that they want to be part of as their community. So that's my one pitch uh, for people who are um, say in a program. If they're able to take uh, outside of the, like the core curriculum for a MERC program to take an introductory class in landscape architecture, I think that'd be a really good thing to have as, as sort of like one more, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, background. That's great. Wow. Our last, and yeah, I appreciate that advice. Our last question is... Is this the toughest question? Yes. Okay. You save the toughest one for last. How do you measure outcomes within your field in terms of project analysis? There was a project analysis. Specifically, like, like outcomes. Like, how do you measure equity? How do you yeah. measure... Yeah. <laughs> um, well, so I'll speak to Metro and yeah. what we do here for our transportation planning, since that's what I'm, I'm most focused on here. Yeah. Um, we, first of all, we try to define outcomes um, that are broad beyond the question at hand, like transportation. Mm. So when we, when we invest in transportation... We're affecting the environment, public health, um, individuals, equity itself. And so the outcomes have to be that full range. So I think that's where, in a, in a jurisdictional level, you always want to have a comprehensive plan for the community that actually has uh, that broader set of outcomes. And then from that, um, then you need to have uh, things that are measurable. Uh, and that you can track over time that that relate back to it. So we use what we use is um, uh, essentially key indicators yeah, uh, as KPI. a way, yeah, to um, have the capacity because it takes time and money to track data, yeah. uh, but have the capacity to monitor how we're, we're how we're making progress toward our outcomes, mm -hmm. and then be able to apply that to like an individual planning decision. So when we um, like at the highest level, we just adopted a, an updated regional transportation plan a year ago. We made findings on all of these outcomes, uh, and we had a little report card, and you know, are we going up or down? And so they're not necessarily like a pass-fail. 
it's more like a compass to see mm. if you're getting off track and then also whether you're pushing on the gas hard enough yeah. uh, or I'll say for an electric vehicle on the accelerator. Um, so um, I think that's really the thing is uh, it's really direction and speed yeah. more than, you know, uh, did you pass or fail. Um, and uh, climate is the best example because we scientists have put it all out there. It's really for policymakers to do something about it, whether it's at the local level or national level or international. But um, we can, in, in Oregon, we have uh, uh, greenhouse gas reduction targets for all of our larger urban areas. Mm. And so we know if we're on track, uh, it doesn't mean that you sort of throw up your hands and say, oh, dang it, we're, we, didn't, we didn't meet it, we we'll have to start over with this plan. What it really means is you need to accelerate and you need to adjust your direction a little bit. So, for yeah. example, here in this last plan update, um, we adjusted for way more transit than we had in our plans before. And we adjusted to spend more on transit sooner to get it out there because we know there's underserved parts of the region where there's definitely people interested in using transit. Uh, so that's an example where um, try, it's important to measure it and tie it to the outcome, but also then respond to it by adjusting your direction and speed in which you're trying to get there. your question yeah it does. okay it's kind of a hard question yeah i'm glad <laughs> i'm glad that we still challenge you after all your years of experience so that's great absolutely all right well thank you so much tom thanks wally always yeah. enjoy to talk to you it's great again this is tom Kloster of the metro regional government senior transportation planner and my boss <laughs> thanks wally thank you